1: Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much for tuning in. And as ever, we have got a heck of a lot to cram in in our time together. I want to start with this tweet from the uh, summit in India. It was tweeted by Biden and others. And this is what it says. A New Commitment to Develop a New India-Middle East-Europe Economic Corridor. Uh, and it outlines some of the things that will arise from this commitment. And the countries involved are the United States, India, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, France, Germany, Italy, and the European Union. No mention of the United Kingdom, which is one of several issues that leads me to pose the question about Britain's place in the world. Where is it post-Brexit? What is it? And if it's all right with all of you, I'd like to do it in the context of um, the book I've got out uh, later this month, although I'm told that if you pre-order it, you'll get it in advance of the formal publication date. Uh, The book's called Turning points, crisis and change in modern Britain from 1945 to Truss, the Liz Truss era. Remember that? About this time a year ago. Um, Although I think she'd have been gone by the end of the podcast. But. what I want to focus on today, I'm going to reflect on a couple of themes that I think arise from the book in different podcasts, but absolutely root it in the present. And um, I was struck by that announcement, and as I said, hailed by Biden um, and others involved in various kind of outlets over recent days. No UK. And um, when Ben Wallace had high hopes of being NATO's next chief, we were told it was vetoed by Biden, who wanted a big figure from the European Union. And Ben Wallace has now gone off, he's left his post, wondering, he must be wondering about Britain's place in the world in that sort of self-centred context. Uh, Boris Johnson and to an extent Rishi Sunak kind of hail Britain's place in the world in the context of Ukraine. But Britain often gets involved in wars. It did when it was in the European Union, famously and often disastrously. Um, That's something Britain does and did in any context. Uh, But what has changed is that clearly while Biden Looks to bigger blocks than single entities, like the the European Union, like the kind of big, bigger superpowers. Britain has withdrawn from all of that, and is an island alone, wondering precisely where it stands. And there have been several examples of that in recent times. Um, and what's so interesting and frankly depressing? is that nothing much has changed, to quote Theresa May in the context of social care policy when she did a U-turn in the 2017 election. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. What um, is interesting about the turning points in relation to Britain and the rest of the world, uh, in the book, there are several. Uh, The Suez Crisis of 1956 britain joining the common market and then leaving in one arc iraq actually i won't go into iraq much in today's podcast um the lessons are not learnt, even though they erupt feverishly at the time of the crisis So the questions being asked after the Suez crisis are more or less the same ones that are being asked now. And the debates the UK were having feverishly throughout the period it was in the European Union are kind of debates that are happening again now. Uh, And so we get to these turning points there is a period of frantic introspection uh, which could lead in productive ways, but rarely does. Um, so for example, with Suez in 1956, uh, by the way, a, a six months of intensity uh, in the fall of a prime minister that I think uh, stands out in a competitive field. Um, Eden, With his almost impulsive decision, when he heard that NASA had retaken the Suez Canal in the summer of 1956, resolved to respond with force, uh, almost without hesitation, when he heard the news. He was furious. He hated NASA, um, But there were other familiar factors. Uh, he had Churchill on his back, or the memory of Churchill in the Second World War, as do all future prime ministers when faced with the possibility of war or other means of resolving an issue. Um, they quite often think of Churchill and Thatcher and the Falklands and Thatcher herself thought of Churchill with the Falklands and so on. But what happened with Eden uh, was extraordinary. There he was, a prime minister who had won a general election. And therefore, I put his speedy fall, uh, he was gone by early 1957, uh, as more dramatic than the fall of Liz Truss this time. A year ago truss was always pretty vulnerable she had never won an election she'd been elected by a party membership and sort of forgot that and thought she had the authority to introduce a revolution in about 10 seconds eden was had been this experienced foreign secretary he had waited long for the premiership when was churchill gonna go and finally he got it and he won an election uh, remember, Gordon Brown waited a long time, then didn't hold an election. And then when he did hold it, he he lost it or sort of lost it, uh, hung parliament in 2010. Um, but what happened? there was this familiar pattern at first the media backed eden you know britain will be show itself to still be this mighty power uh labor backed eden at first hugh gateskill uh completely was with him there were endless references to the mistakes of the 1930s and the appeasement of mussolini and hitler Um, and that mistake must not be made again all those attempts to learn from the past but uh in a way that leads to a trap and the trap in this case was that Eden hadn't quite recognized the changing nature of Britain's place in the world. Um, It needed the support of the United States as indeed did the resolution of the Second World War something that's occasionally omitted when uh, Brexiteers reflect on Churchill and the triumph of the Second World War. Um, And anyway, in relation to Suez, Eden did not get the support of the United States. And without it, his plans to uh, intervene militarily were almost pointless because actually by the end of the sequence, the US were actively opposing any military force and his chancellor the Wiley Macmillan who began by supporting Eden in his endeavors opposed Eden on the grounds of the economic consequences of the loss of support from the United States. Anyway the Hansard debates which I use as a uh, one of the sources to make sense of Suez are extraordinary they are far more intense than the House of Commons debates as Blair moved towards uh, the war in Iraq, because then it was part of Blair's calculation. His comfort zone is when he has the support of many conservatives and the conservative leadership supported the war in Iraq. Only the more perceptive Tories like Ken Clark didn't. Um, but very quickly... Eden lost the support of the Labour leadership, lost the support of the media, and began to lose the support of his own parliamentary party. And the debates were ferocious. And Eden was forced uh, to bring about all kinds of contortions to justify his position and linguistic agility, which uh, Blair deployed in the build-up to Iraq, but Eden did so similarly. Um, But it was unconvincing. And as I say, when America turned, there was no chance. And Eden resigned on the grounds of ill health, but actually that wasn't it. Uh, Suez destroyed him. Uh, both politically and fleetingly made him ill Uh, there is a cinematic youtube of eden broadcasting to the country trying to persuade them and it's so ironic because he began in quite a macho way you know i'm gonna get nasa you know we're going to uh, britain will roar again he was trying to in this tv broadcast to the nation Uh, in the autumn of 56, convince voters that he was a man of peace Uh, and that only in that context could you recognize if he was doing something with a military end in mind, it must be with good cause. Um, Now, that was a sort of turn in itself in the space of a couple of months. But anyway, Britain had to withdraw. America had declared. And that triggered a big debate, about Britain's place in the world post-1945? Um, was it one where it would have a relationship, a special relationship with America, but one uh, where it recognized its subservience? It could not act without America, whereas America could act without Britain? Or should it move closer to Europe and then the common market? And Macmillan, uh, who succeeded Eden, wanted us to move closer to Europe as a direct response to Suez. And he got Ted Heath actually to negotiate Britain joining. So it was part of something bigger, knowing that it could no longer act alone. But Britain was rejected. It was rejected again in the 60s. Wilson had a go at getting us in. And then when Britain did join in 1973, the debate wasn't settled. There were no references, actually, to Suez when Britain joined in 73. Um, Instead, there was not a settled moment in the period when Britain joined to when Britain left, where the whole thing was not tempestuous and disturbed. Uh, It's easy to forget that Britain's entry Heath was warned in the Commons he might lose the key votes on Britain entering. We had uh, the Labour leader in opposition contorting himself painfully as the Labour leader in opposition now torts himself painfully over Brexit. Keir Starmer knows the harm Brexit is causing, but he doesn't speak of it and uh, just claims he will negotiate a slightly better deal, and that's the end of it. Uh, Harold Wilson uh, knew Britain's place was in Europe, uh, was basically supportive of the idea, but his party wasn't at the time, so he opposed it and split the Parliamentary Labour Party. His deputy, Roy Jenkins, voted to join uh, in a rebellion, which, in a way, was the first move towards the formation of the SDP in 1981. And Wilson did so cleverly. He was smart in opposition at leaving the door slightly ajar. So Wilson said, We oppose the Conservative terms of membership as negotiated by edward heath that left of course the door open of labor terms of membership which of course wilson renegotiated and put to a referendum which labor uh, or he or they the remainers as uh, they weren't called that then they were called the pro-marketeers uh won in 1975 but that of course didn't end the debate uh the debate was never ended Um, and in 1983, the Labour Party was committed to leaving the common market, even without a referendum. And on we went, the dance uh, changed hands, and the Conservatives under later Thatcher became far more hostile, although she was one of the architects of the single market, of which Britain was by far the biggest beneficiary. So there we have this sort of very Painful, disturbed dance, which Brexit was meant to resolve and settle. Britain outside, Britain would have all the cards in a trading deal with Europe. Britain would get a new trade deal with the United States. None of it has happened. So all the issues that erupted after the Suez crisis, where Eden became a ghostly figure in his televised broadcast. The most telegenic post-war prime minister Britain has had, looked like a film star. You could see him almost fading away. And following it, questions were asked about the relationship with the United States or whether Britain would have a stronger relationship with the United States inside what was then the common market. And now look around. Uh, Wallace being vetoed for the top job in uh, NATO. Um, This new economically vibrant agreement negotiated by the EU, the US, and others, uh, the UK not cited. The hailing of the return of the UK to the Horizon program as if this, this, you know, the EU's Horizon Programme, which, of course, the UK had done so much to bring about as a member of the EU, hailed as a great negotiating triumph. And, of course, on one level it, it, it was because Johnson would not have agreed to it. He preferred the fantasy of Britain being apart. Um, but all of them raise questions that were raised after Suez where is Britain best place? Closer to Europe? If so, in what form? A taboo in the build-up to the general election, beyond vague comments from Labour about trying to rem- remove some of the barriers of the botched deal, as they call it. Botched? It's complete disaster, a deal negotiated by an unelected courtier, Lord Frosty Frost, and presided over by a prime minister with a wayward attention span who probably didn't read the full agreement when it arrived on Christmas Eve uh, when Johnson was still in number 10, botched. You could do so much more to expose that phase of Tory misrule by defining it more clearly as the calamity it was. Um, But that will be a taboo largely in the general election. Uh, The Tories can't talk about it because it so obviously hasn't delivered what they promised. Um, But Labour are too scared to talk about it too. But in government, if there's a change of government or if the Tories somehow or other stagger on for a fourth or is it fifth term, you begin to lose count of the number of different prime ministers in different terms. Um, they too will be struggling with this question as they are now. You can see it with um, these puny trade deals which are being hailed as great triumphs and the determination of Sunak to get the trade deal done quickly with India as another kind of uh, flag to wave of post-Brexit entrepreneurship. Um, And yet the deal will be limited if uh, Sunak keeps to his briefings at the start of the summit in India, where he said that he wanted to keep visas out of it. Whereas, of course, the Indian government want visas to be at the heart of the trade deal. And they will be in the end, if it's an extensive one. But even then, the questions remain. Biden is obviously much less interested in the UK in its current position of an island alone. And even if Trump gets back in, um, uh, you know, wherever he is presiding over the United States from his cell or from the White House or wherever he is. Um, If there were to be a trade deal, Trump will want it to be about America. And again, it will be like the Australia one. You read the small print and realize it's a complete disaster for British farmers or the New Zealand one. What is Britain's place in the world? The historian AJP Taylor Uh, once said of Germany, he was referring to the legendary historian. Um, He was referring to Germany after the 1848 revolutions, which swept across Europe, though not Britain. He said, Germany reached a turning point and failed to turn. And quite often in the turning points I explore, I feel the same about the UK. The UK quite often reaches a turning point and fails to to turn. And the fact that in foreign policy we're still talking about the same issues as we did in the aftermath of the Suez crisis, and we're still working through the same issues as we were while we were in Europe, while we were out of Europe, um, shows that turning points are reached and then the UK quite often fails to turn. I I argue in the book, there are two turning points which have endured. And um, yeah, well, I'll come on to them on another occasion, if that's all right with all of you. But yeah, the book's out. And I hope it conjures up the dramas and the reasons why quite often we reach a turning point and fail to turn. And you can order it from all the usual Uh, places uh, there'll be a link in this uh, podcast oh yeah while I'm at it uh, yeah I'm live at uh, King's Place on um, Wednesday so if you hear the podcast on the day it comes out you've still got time to get these tickets come along uh, where we're going to be delving deep on other issues that are whirling around the contemporary scene, um, as well as contextualizing a bit, context being the favorite word.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
1: Now, if it's okay with all of you, let's go to some of your. Questions. And the email address, if you want to join in, our never-ending discussion is Steve Rick14 at iCloud.com. Steve Ric1414 at iCloud.com. Now I've got loads, and I must say I've had some great ones rushing in at the last moment which i've made a note of and so if you sent them kind of over the weekend first thing monday i will i will try uh, read them out next time so some very good ones but um, here are some anyway on all kinds of things uh, of urgent kind of reflective potency Uh, let's begin with our correspondent from brussels caroline morgan uh caroline says uh welcome back after the summer and hello from your brussels correspondence to all the rock and rollers in the cooperative uh and caroline is reflecting on uh the a email from our French correspondent Dominique Joule last week, who spoke about the tax advantages of having three or more children in France. It's prompted me to write with a suggestion for Keir and Rachel, says Caroline. In Belgium, the tax rate is high compared to the UK, forty to fifty percent. People tend to expect it, and public services are commensurately much better. This is the this is me speaking now. This is the great taboo, of course. You know, if you have higher taxes, which produces higher levels of revenue, you do get better public services. Um, But in UK pre-election periods, there's a pretense that this word reform will do all the business and higher investment is not necessary. The the precise meaning of the reform, as we've discussed before, is is imprecise. Anyway, back to Caroline. One income source is not taxed at all, revenue from rental income. This has a lot of knock-on consequences in Brussels and presumably other cities. Typically, young people buy a small flat at the start of their working life. When they start to earn more or get married or whatever, they move to the suburbs and buy a house. But unlike in London, what they often do is keep the flat and rent it out tax-free when they move. This means that lots of ordinary, not wealthy people own a rental flat and there's a proliferation of cheap small flats and studios available for rent in Brussels. Rents are less than half their equivalent in London and there isn't a shortage. You can rent a really nice place for a sensible amount. See, that is an interesting um, example of using the tax system creatively. I mean, I don't think it will solve it wholly in London and some of the other British cities, Caroline, because there is just a shortage of accommodation. Um, There hasn't been enough house building uh, to meet the demand. Um, But she adds, in Belgium, rents are regulated, unlike the UK, and increases are linked to inflation. So there isn't much scope for exploitative Landlords, so it's an interesting combination of regulation, uh, but quite generous uh, tax regime. So a sort of active state in regulating, and then a generous tax uh, scheme to stimulate availability of rented accommodation. You see, there's all kinds of things you can do, Um, and that's another interesting example. Uh, Looking forward to the Kings Place show, which I'll be attending remotely, sadly, as I'll be in Brussels. Well, do. Uh, engage with us on the night, Caroline. Uh, there are options to do that for those of us in the streaming cooperative on Wednesday night. Um, Sue Aykroyd uh, writes, looking forward to hearing your commentary in the run-up to the election. Yes, Sue, we are in the build-up here. Uh, glad you're coming round to PR as the country is having to put up with being governed on a minority of the votes. Also, many feel their vote makes no difference. At uh, present we have a particularly eccentric willful home secretary who seems to have no synergy with the prime minister as i recall you haven't looked back at home secretaries yet do they matter uh oh well that's interesting yeah home secretary i was thinking of doing a series on chancellors for uh uh, patreon subscribers where, where you get those bonus podcasts um home secretaries are really interesting because it's a unique role in government it's usually they come to prominence when something unexpected happens like a prisoner escapes or um, you have a uh, as sue puts it an eccentric home secretary obsessed with keeping people out of britain you know and all the rest of it um but they quite often have awkward relationships with um prime ministers. Yeah, that would be worth exploring. See, Theresa May, who served as a Home Secretary throughout the whole Cameron period of uh, office, um, but they didn't get on that well. They weren't that close. And May didn't rate Cameron and Osborne. She was more kind of mature, really, than them. Um, And uh, yeah, I'm just trying to think of others. Tony Blair, yeah, he went through quite a few Home Secretaries one way or another, although David Blunkett did he serve? Yeah, he res- he was he had to resign, didn't he? Just Straw, I think, served a whole term. Anyway, something to reflect on. It's an it's a difficult, challenging uh, brief, and and we've got someone wholly unsuited in charge at the moment, who sooner clearly, you know, brought back because he thought he had to to win the leadership, but in winning the leadership, he sows the seeds of perhaps fatal trouble um that's one of the themes i'll be pursuing at king's place on wednesday night we go deep at king's place part shakespeare part rory bremner if you know what i mean uh on now to uh marion uh, sainsbury Uh, Welcome back. Sorry you couldn't come to Edinburgh, but looking forward to King's Place next week. Yeah, a lot of you from the cooperative coming along, which will be great. Uh, Many of the reports on the Labour reshuffled have described it in terms of factions and factionalism, the dominance of Blairites, etc. My question is how far this is a perceptive and useful approach to analysing the developments, and how far is it just lazy journalism? Uh, yeah, it's, it is It is largely, uh, all these ubiquitous terms in British politics are largely lazy, um, including the forward march, the return of the Blairites. Um, it's something I'm going to be exploring at King's Plates, really, what that reshuffle tells us about Keir Starmer and whether such terms as the return of the blairites makes much sense and if it does what is the sense that we can read into it but i think you raise an interesting question which i uh, marian which i'm going to reflect on more on wednesday night and in podcasts to come but be wary of all ubiquitous terms moderniser reformer blairite brownite to still use sometimes you kind of think god more precision is required. Richard Frame writes, could we be moving towards a massive realignment in party politics as the country experienced from 1922? Could 2024 be as defining that we could well witness the last rights for a conservative party that no longer knows how to govern sensibly? Uh, Richard, uh, I remember during Labour's landslide wins under Tony Blair, a book was written about uh, the strange death of the Conservative Party, and they won the next election. So I never write off the Conservative Party. But I think if they lose, um, there will be one hell of a battle in that party about why they lost, and what they need to do to recover. Um, And of course, the final decision in terms of the leader will be made by that same membership that put Johnson and Truss into number 10 um over to uh luca McCool. uh i'm a long-time listener but first-time emailer oh well welcome luca i'm a 20 year old studying archaeology at glasgow university in addition to my studies i also cycle for deliveroo and will be happy to provide any food-based courier services for the cooperative in the glasgow area well there's an offer uh for all uh rock and roll politics cooperative members in glasgow you've got a you got a delivery service. Uh, so, anyway, an interesting question from Luca. While SNP support has recently fallen to around thirty-five percent, support for Scottish independence has remained comparatively consistent and steady. My question is, do you think the constitutional argument will remain a prominent feature of Scottish politics, perhaps in a similar way to the issues thrown up by Europe since and before 1972? Or do you think that independent support is more short term and tied to the success of the SNP? This is a key question, not only for Scotland, uh, but the future of the UK. And at the moment, we don't know the answer, but we're going to find out the answer quite soon. In other words, will the fall of big personalities like Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond from the leadership of the SNP lead to a decline in the SNP? And will that, in the end, lead to a decline in support for independence? Because the SNP, you need a vehicle to deliver independence, even if the route towards delivery is still unclear. And obviously, if the vehicle is tottering towards decline, um, how do you... uh, achieve the cause? So we don't know the answer at the moment. What I sense when I was in Edinburgh speaking to lots of people is that for all the dramas uh, whirling around the SNP at the moment, there is still quite a steady support for independence, not enough to win a referendum at the moment, polls suggest, but steady. Now, where does that go if the SNP is in trouble? Or will the SNP recover from its recent dramas. Um, so there are lots of unknowns, but I think a, a mood setting moment will be the by-election this October uh, in Rutherglen. Um, an SNP held seat, but one Labour should gain. It won it in 2017 in the general election. But you raise big issues. Uh, keep keep in touch with us all uh, and good luck um, with the archaeology degree in that great university. Um, David Thompson uh, uh, wonders, he's written about this before, Uh, what about local government finances uh, and what the bankruptcy of Birmingham City Council exposes? So much for levelling up, David points out. Uh, Yeah, who is to blame and how can the national v local policy and spending priorities be properly balanced? God, there are such huge themes in all the emails I've received uh, from the cooperative in recent days. They are a podcast each, the last one about Scotland and this one. Um, uh, uh, Well, as you say, so much for levelling up. Of course, levelling up to work, given that local government has been starved of funding since uh, the 2010 Act of Economic Genius from Cameron and Osborne, um, that it needs the help of central government. But when you get central government financial assistance central government insists on having a role in how the money is spent and that presents problems when you claim as labor did in january to be offering an historic transfer of power because when you hand over money that they always come with strings attached so we've got a situation in birmingham and it won't be the first or the last um where a council is simply running out of funding, money, for lots of reasons, but most fundamentally because George Osborne targeted councils so they would kind of get the blame and take the hits, um, as well as actually you know, you targeted quite a lot of central government spending as well. Um, so there's a wider context, David, and it will take a long, long time uh, to reflect on a whole podcast, which we'll do at some point. Uh, taking back control, giving power away, popular phrases, which raises many, many issues. We'll very quickly go through a few more. And I say, I know some of you emailed me very recently. and You'll get yours out soon. Steve Petrie. Um, a decision that was taken purely on the basis of the health of the Treasury balance sheet has simply put the costs of school rebuilding in all likely the costs including additional interim measures and the economic opportunity costs from disrupted education are likely to be far greater yeah steve you identified the key issue with the school uh, the school building collapsing in certain places short-termism oh we can save money here and in the end a government spends more uh planning One of the lessons from the 1945 chapter in my book on turning points is that the Labour government then were planners. They planned ahead, they thought ahead. Uh, They were flawed in the end because they didn't establish that as an orthodoxy to be followed. Uh, uh, But short-termism now, and oh yeah, we can save a few quid here if we do this, and then suddenly you're hit with a much bigger bill. Uh, Phil O'Dell, I'm listening to your latest podcast and suddenly had an idea for a theme for a podcast or even a book. I felt I should send this while I remember it. Well, thank you for doing it. How about compromises and climb downs? Um, Self-explanatory, I suspect, but I'm interested in when politicians have had to go against their beliefs and principles or reverse a previous decision. Ah, Thank you, Phil. That is a great theme. And it happens quite often. And sometimes they're accused of being liars. But quite often when you explore it, they have no choice but to say things they don't believe as a kind of compromise. Uh, so that's a great idea for a series, Phil. And I'm going to take you up on it at some point. Hugh Carr has another idea. Uh, he's musing with a gin on a sunny evening uh, whilst listening to the podcast. And he came up with this idea, significant deputies. So you've got such great ideas. to uh, Toatley. Howe to Thatcher. Hattersley or Smith to Kinnock. Heseltine to Major. Prescott or Mandelson to Blair. Uh, Nobody to Brown, May, Johnson. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Osborne to Cameron. Uh, Yeah, just a thought. It's a great thought, Hugh. Um, So these... Patreon bonus podcasts, and by the way, thank you, those who subscribe to Patreon. I've got some names to read out to thank some of you who do. Um, is um, also the place for some of these bonus series, and I'm about to do one on rivalries, which was suggested by Stuart Grant. But some of the ones that have come up today are just brilliant. So, yeah. Um, And uh, for those of you who do subscribe, I've been given some more names to thank. Shona McLean, Max Kelly, Richard West, Adrian Lyons, Sean Coldstone. I recognize lots of the names because you email the cooperative. Chris Edwards, John Oram, Nathan Doran, Jonathan Brooks, Liz O'Malley. So there's some more. Thank you so much for subscribing. And I hope you enjoy the bonus podcast series. You've just heard what the themes are going to be for the coming months because we've had some brilliant ideas today. I think we'd better stop there. Um, Thank you so much for listening. And as I say, you can get hold of the book, uh, Turning Points, Crisis and Change in Modern Britain. And I'm going to be doing another podcast asking this question soon. Are we on the edge of an historic turning point with the forthcoming general election but anyway you can get hold of the book and read there are uh, 10 turning points actually 11 there's two in one chapter um but more reflections to come but in the context of now where as i say some of the themes that emerge from turning points from decades ago are still raging around us unresolved okay see uh, as many as you as possible at king's place we're going to have some fun and delve deep and yeah let's all gather here for the podcast very soon take care bye